When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. I hope you are as as excited as I am about this video today. And if you're not, that's all right, because I think you will be once I explain uh, what it's going to be about. See, some time ago, I'm talking first half 2017, I put out a series titled Economic Collapse Scenario. It was a seven-part, seven-video, a seven-episode series that told the story of an economic crisis where you, the viewer, was the main character. And from what I recall, it was received pretty well. A lot of positive feedback. A lot of people asking, hey, do this again. Hey, can you continue the story, etc., etc." Well, it's no longer up on my channel. And I realize that there are likely quite a few that, quite a few of you that A, miss it, meaning that you wish you could watch again, or B, I never got a chance to watch in the first place. And so I want to give you that opportunity. So what I'll be doing today is I I hunted down the script. It's in both paper format as well as digital, depending on what piece of of the story. And I want to recreate. I want to reread it. I'm going to keep it more or less in its original form. I'm sure I could do better writing today, but I'm going to keep it mostly there with very few changes. Um, But I'm sure I can read it better today in 2019. I don't know. What I'm going to do is I just want to read this straight through for you guys. I'm going to put this all in one video, uh, and and I hope you enjoy it. So uh, I guess without further ado, let's begin. Episode 1, Day 1. You roll over and look at the digital alarm clock beside your bed. You realize you were supposed to be up 20 minutes ago. Despite your grogginess, you come to the realization you must have forgotten to put your phone in the charger last night, and of course your phone now acts as your alarm clock and has made your actual alarm clock all but obsolete. Luckily, thanks to years of waking up to a 7 a.m. alarm, your body has developed its own internal clock. You woke up late, but as you stumble out of bed, you calculate that you should be able to make it to the office by 8 a.m., You put on your usual business casual attire, kiss your significant other goodbye, grab your briefcase, and head out to conquer your morning commute. It's only Tuesday, and you're already ready for the weekend. You turn on your favorite talk radio station. They're talking about Trump and and, and some policy proposals. But you're not really paying attention to it because traffic is moving slow, and you're just about positive at this point that you will be late. You pull into the parking lot as the clock strikes 8 a.m. While you find a parking spot, the 8 a.m. news brief comes on. The top story is about European stock markets, something about how trading was suspended due to panic selling and, and markets plummeting. They say on the radio that maybe it was due to a glitch. You catch something about the ECB, the European Central Bank, their, their central bank over, for, over there in the Eurozone, and something about the Euro, their currency. Your attention would normally be piqued. You've, you've considered yourself financial and political news junkie ever since your coworker and friend convinced you to look into precious metals a few years ago, but you're late for work, and you neglect to listen to the full news brief. You walk into the office 
politely greet the receptionist in the same manner as you always do, make your way to your modestly sized office, take off your jacket, and relax. It's only Tuesday. The big presentation isn't until Friday, you tell yourself, in your typical procrastinating fashion. You're about to go onto your computer and read more about the news report you heard on the radio, but the phone on your desk rings. It's, it's someone from corporate reminding you about the conference call you have this afternoon with a client that your marketing firm works for. You thank them, acting like you remembered all along, that you're prepared to wow this client, only you didn't remember. You aren't prepared, and you realize you need to write up a report to show them this afternoon. You close out of your browser on your PC, no time for distractions now, and get to work before you, and before you know it, it's 10 a.m. You decide to take a coffee break. It's a wonder you've made it this far without any coffee. While you're up, you check your smartphone. There's a text from your spouse asking about dinner plans this night, a uh, Facebook notification, a couple emails, nothing exciting. Uh, but what's this? One of the emails catches your eye. It's from your go-to online bullion dealer. You're used to clickbaity text in these emails, but this one is titled Silver Up 14%, Gold Up 9%, Buy Now Before They Rise More. You seem they mean 14% and 9% over the past week or month. Surely, I mean, they couldn't have risen that much today. It's only 10 a.m. You open the email. It seems too good to be true. As soon as you skim over the first few lines, something clicks. The news report on the radio this morning. Something isn't right. You hurry back to your office, forgetting your coffee, forgetting your presentation, while also ignoring a co-worker's obnoxiously cheerful greeting they give you every single morning. And you skip going to CNN or Wall Street on your computer and go straight to your go-to news source, Zero Hedge, your one-stop source for financial and political news. The top article is titled, European Stocks Down 28% Trading Halted as ECB Scrambles for Answers. You skim the article. Allegedly, there was a leak from within German banking giant Deutsche Bank, claiming that the bank was essentially insolvent due to a recent increase in the rate of large and small depositors emptying their accounts, along with the fact that Deutsche's derivative bets had gone very, very wrong. The leak also detailed that this turmoil would also affect many other large European banks, including UBS, HSBC, ING, Barclays, and more. It also mentioned that nearly every large bank in France, Italy, Greece, and Spain were essentially underwater due to their high exposure to Deutsche Bank as well as their derivatives positioning. Deutsche Bank, as well as the ECB, tried to dispel the rumors, but they had no such luck. No one was buying it. Every European stock exchange closed within two hours of the announcement, with many of these very bank stocks dropping by more than 40%. Of course, trading was halted before they could drop any more. You quickly check the U.S. stock market only to find the Dow Jones has dropped 4,000 points. It's already tripped the circuit breakers multiple times and is closed for the day. You spend the next hour perusing articles and watching news about this ongoing crisis. That's what it is now. You're nervous. You know what this means for the economy and what it likely will mean for your own job. Your precious metal stacking coworker comes into your office to discuss the events in the news. The two of you both realize the pain that is coming due to this crisis, but you both also are watching the news with a form of sick excitement. 
You realize many will lose their jobs, their houses, their livelihoods due to these events. This will be far worse than the Great Depression, the two of you agree. But you wait in anticipation to see what this brings for the banking sector, for central banks and the world's fiat currencies. Could this be what brings it to an end? You hope so. It's now lunchtime and the two of you go out together to grab some fast food. Going through the drive-thru, the two of you try a total of seven debit and credit cards. None of them are working. According to the fast food employee, very few cards have been working this morning. He says it's a glitch, but, but you know that this is no glitch. You foot the bill with cash, and out of curiosity, you stop at a nearby gas station to try the ATM. The line of the ATM fills up the entire store. Apparently, many people had filled up with gas, only to find their cards weren't working. In addition, the ATM is only given out a single $20 bill to each account. Again, you and your coworker are not surprised. The two of you, again, out of curiosity, check out the local bank you both bank at. Similar story as the ATM. Withdrawals were capped at $20, but the teller was very clear that the bank was more than happy to accept cash deposits. You decide not to wait in line and return to the office. Immediately upon walking into the office, you remember the conference call you have scheduled for 30 minutes from now. You panic. You're nowhere near ready to give a presentation. However, luckily, the receptionist notifies you that they called earlier and canceled. You call them back only to discover that they have canceled their contract with your company. They begin to explain why, citing market and economic uncertainty, but you already know why. What good is marketing if no one is willing to buy a product in the first place because they don't have the means because they're spending that money on gas, on food, on keeping their house warm this winter. You stop by your manager's office, but he's on the phone with his supervisor. As soon as you return to your office, your manager stops by to tell you you're more than welcome to head home for the day, stating that most of your firm's customers have put a freeze on ongoing marketing projects. An ominous sign. But again, you aren't surprised. You call your wife on the way home to let her know you got off early and that you have to cancel dinner plans for later. You only have $18 in cash. You spend the rest of the drive home kicking yourself for not having more cash on hand. You always pride yourself on having thousands of dollars worth of precious metals on hand, but you fail to realize how the fiat currency you despised for so long would still be so important for quite some time. You get home and you spend the next several hours reading up on the state of the financial crisis. You watch YouTube videos, read articles, watch some news. You find yourself even more conflicted. You're excited and somber at the same time. You're so engrossed in the news that you realize your wife has been home for half an hour already and you've barely said a word to her. You decide that no matter how closely you follow the news, it won't change what happens in the following days, the following weeks. You decide to stay off the web for a few hours. Your wife and you talk about the news for some time, but eventually you unwind and watch some show on Netflix for a while. You're used to busy evenings, and such a relaxing evening is refreshing to you. Little do you know that, whether you like it or not, these evenings will become more commonplace as your life slows down in synchronization with the economy. You spend some time reading up on the events before you go to bed, but at this point, it's mostly analysis. The, the Asian markets didn't even bother opening. 
their respective governments called a holiday in anticipation of more panic selling. Trump delivered a speech, but you don't find it comforting at all. He mostly talked about the irresponsibility of European banks and governments as if the U.S. government had clean hands, as if U.S. banks were responsible. You know that he knows he is essentially powerless against the fury of the markets at this point. You go to sleep early, but your sleep is uneasy. Episode 2, Day 2. You wake up in the morning. After the stress of yesterday, you're surprised you slept through the night. It's Wednesday, and although you set your alarm, what woke you up was your phone ringing. It's your work, only it's not your office downtown, it's corporate. It's an automated message notifying you that all three satellite offices will be closed today and that you can call back if you want more details. At first, you're confused. This morning felt like any other Wednesday morning and you were still in a fog. But then you remember the events of yesterday. You quickly try calling back and wait on hold for 20 minutes before resigning to the fact that you won't get through to anyone. You're worried. You, you know that with an economic crisis comes a decreased demand for many different services, including marketing. You're thinking at least you have enough seniority that you probably won't be the first to go, hopefully, but on the bright side, you can't remember the last time you had a Wednesday off. Your wife is already up as well and just heading out the door to her job as a nurse at the local hospital. At least one of you has some measure of job security, you think to yourself. You take your time getting ready for the day and take lots of time to catch up on everything that's going on in the economic world. In the markets, it's been more of the same. European markets are down another 20%, but already closed. The pundits on CNBC are saying that the New York Stock Exchange will probably do the same thing today as well. The European Central Bank announced that they're going to begin aggressive quantitative easing, hoping to buy up as much bad debt that European banks are notorious for hanging on to, and hopefully returning liquidity to the European banking sector. Regardless, nearly every bank in all of Europe is closed today. People want cash, not money in the bank, and there just isn't enough to go around. The European Central Bank also urged the member nations of the EU to bail out banks that are at risk of going insolvent. Almost as soon as the announcement was made by the ECB, the German Chancellor announced Deutsche Bank as well as some smaller German banks would be the recipient of a bank bailout as soon as the measure made it through their version of parliament. Other European countries followed suit, with the exception of Italy and Greece. No reason was given as of now, but it sounds like they're willing to let these banks deal with this on their own. With your knowledge of these countries' past issues with banks, it's likely a political decision because you know how unpopular some of these banks are in these countries. There's some news footage of crowds outside of banks, government buildings, and in the streets. There, there were a few riots too in Spain, France, Netherlands. You watch the images of protesters meeting a wall of police or cars on fire. This is all familiar in both Europe and the United States after the last few decades, so this isn't a shock to you. You skip waiting for the U.S. markets to open. You have an idea. You and your wife barely have any cash on hand. You regret not keeping more on hand for emergencies. You didn't think your financial preparations all the way through. Luckily, you have a respectable stack of silver and gold that has been grown for the last few years. 
Interestingly, the metals markets in Europe, as well as the COMEX, haven't yet closed like the stock markets have. The price of silver is already up 35% since two days ago, two days ago before this mess started. Gold is up 30%. You grab a few ounces of silver and drive to your local bullion dealer slash coin shop. On the way, you notice that it seems like there are fewer cars on the road today than usual. Also, you note the absence of lines around banks and ATMs today. In fact, there aren't any cars at the bank. Looks like they're closed today. You make it to your dealer. He says these last two days have been some of the busiest days he's seen in a while. Usually, you're the only customer in the store. Now, there are at least a dozen people that were ahead of you in line. He says there have been a few people buying silver or gold, but some of them say they are longtime buyers and believe that this might be their last opportunity to buy any more for a very long time. He said there are a few newbies, too, that were referred to him and, and told, up to pick, to, told to pick up a few ounces of silver or a bit of gold because of the events of the prior day. Unfortunately, he says that 90% of the people coming by are ones looking to sell. Other stackers or even collectors of, of graded coins need cash immediately and are selling. The dealer says he's only buying five ounces of silver at a time and no gold. He says he's extremely low on cash and he hasn't been able to get to the bank either. You brought 10 ounces, but you decide to just sell two ounces for now. He's thankful that you're fine with just selling two. You notice there's a table of silver he's already bought today. You estimate that it's at least 500 ounces. It's only 11 a.m. and he opened at 8 you head home, listening to NPR on the way. Predictably, predictably, they're talking about the markets. It's all any of the news agencies have talked about since yesterday. Markets opened for a whole five minutes before the exchange decided to bypass the usual circuit breaker rules and to close for the rest of the day. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 1,800 points in those five minutes. The commentators and guests on NPR might not realize it, but you know you're witnessing the mighty Western financial system come to a screeching halt. To your own surprise, you find yourself hoping it somehow, some way, some way, somehow, someone can right this ship. This surprises yourself because you've waited for this day. You've waited with anticipation for the collapse of the Western economy and financial system so that it can be replaced with something better, a new system where the power isn't concentrated at the top, but rather at the bottom. You knew this reset would be painful, but you already are worried about your family's future. What will happen with your job, your house, or even just food, water, and electricity? But you know this ship can't be steadied. It's been sinking for a long time, not just since Tuesday. Only now, people are realizing that this water has been slowly rising around them. This ship will sink and that they have no choice but to go down with it. Your only consolation is that you are somewhat prepared. You have your precious metals. You have food for months. You have guns. But you know that none of those things are a guarantee. They only increase your odds of weathering the storm. You're brought out of your deep thoughts by a report on the radio, breaking news. They say that a few select Italian banks have begun tapping into retirement accounts in search of some extra funds and liquidity. Apparently, the average account holder wasn't affected yet and that the accounts are being reduced on average by 5%. You pull into your driveway You still have several hours before your wife gets off work, so you decide it would be a good time to go for a jog. 
By the time you get back, you can already feel that your thoughts have become clear and you feel much better about the situation you're in. You shower, eat, and read up on the news. As of now, it seems like the world economy is at a standstill. No new news out of the ECB, White House, Federal Reserve, etc. Mostly just discussion and speculation at this point. And confusion. It's as if no one in the government or media thought that an event of this magnitude was ever possible. Of course, when you turn to alternative media sources, such as Zero Hedge or some YouTube channels you follow and the like, there is no surprise. There's a mix of glee by some and even more doom and gloom by others. Your wife pulls into the driveway. The two of you spend much of the evening discussing your current situation and reassuring each other. You're worried about your job. She's worried about the mortgage payment due next week. You fill her in on what's going on around the world. She fills you in on what she's learned just from talking to patients and coworkers at the hospital. Your experiences are not unique. Almost everyone is short on cash. Banks have stopped electronic transfers for the time being. That means debit and credit cards aren't working either. She said there was even a patient in the ER today that had been shot in a burglary gone wrong and suggested perhaps there was a connection between the economic crisis and a rise in crime. You both realize that an inevitable increase in crime will occur. For now, people are still pacified. They have food, water, TV, electricity, heat, healthcare, Wi-Fi, Netflix, Facebook, fast food, and all the other modern amenities that are treated as necessities. But this will change, you explained to her. The world is currently in a state of confusion, a state of shock. Give it some time, a week, two weeks, a month. That confusion will morph into anger, into desperation. She understands completely. This isn't the first conversation about the state of the world economy the two of you have had uh, in the past from time to time. She tells you about her coworkers. She, she calls them clueless. She, they talk about the stock market or how the banks are closed, but then we'll proceed to talk about their vacation plans for this upcoming winter. Clueless indeed. She tells you that you have as much, she tells you that as much as she finds comfort in being physically prepared for things of this nature by having guns or food or precious metals, she's most thankful for the fact that she is mentally and emotionally prepared for this event. The rest of the evening is largely uneventful. You fall asleep much more easily than you expected and don't bother setting your alarm for the morning. Episode 3, Day 4. It's Friday. Payday, at least you hope so. Your communication with your employer has been minimal since Tuesday. No one has been at your local office, and you only get a message when you call corporate. Luckily, you'll actually know whether or not you you get paid since your bank is actually accepting ingoing and outgoing transfers. Just like the last two days, you've gotten voicemails in the early morning letting you know that your office is closed today. The message also lets you know that more information should be available for employees on Monday and that paychecks will still be deposited today. This is good news. Your mortgage payment is due next week. You roll out of bed at 9 a.m. Your wife has been gone at work for an hour now. You get on your laptop and immediately fill yourself in on what has been happening in the financial world. After the cash shortages the last three days, the Treasury has announced that they will begin shipping extra dollar bills to banks around the country via cargo planes and 18-wheelers. Still, this isn't as much of a concern for you since your debit card works for the time being. 
But make, make no mistake, things have not gotten any better in the last two days. U.S. markets are now down a whopping 15, 50% since Tuesday. European markets are down over 80%. Your European banking system is dangerously close to collapsing due to the fact that Italy and Greece refuse to commit to any bailouts of their banks. Bailouts of German, French, British, and other banks are in the works and are expected to be announced today. Italian and Greece banks, on the other hand, have begun to tap into savings and checking accounts in order to bail themselves out, since the governments have ruled out the possibility of those bailouts. You read the news, riots are starting in both countries as night arrives. The European Central Bank has announced a 300 billion euro one-time round of quantitative easing. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the Federal Reserve has announced they will begin aggressive QE again. You're not surprised and you're not encouraged. You open up an article just posted by Bloomberg. Apparently, Bank of America is announcing that they're also taking a hit financially because of their extensive derivative exposure. This is the same thing that caused so many European banks to almost go under. The story immediately becomes front page news. You see the words Lehman Brothers and Fannie and Freddie for the first time since all this started on Tuesday. This whole crisis might have come to a surprise to many, but people aren't stupid. We're only a decade removed from the Great Recession, and another similar crisis has been the worst nightmare for many, much like a repeat of the Great Depression was feared for so many decades. Before you read any further, you immediately pay off your mortgage bill, internet, electricity, and phone bill online. It might be premature. It might be playing it overly safe, but you know that Bank of America is only the beginning and that your account could fall prey to this crisis, just like it has in Europe. Immediately after this announcement, questions begin to be asked on major news sites. What about other U.S. banks? What about J.P. Morgan, Chase, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup? Have they been hurt as badly as Bank of America? Will they need a bailout, like so many banks did during the Great Recession and financial crisis? Will the bailout bill pass through Congress? Will Trump sign it? It's amazing how fast confusion and shock has progressed to panic here in the States. It literally took a matter of minutes for every major news network to realize that this is not a European problem with side effects in the U.S. This is a global crisis. The only consolation at this point is that it's Friday and that the U.S. markets will be closed within a few hours and won't open again until Monday which will give these banks, the government, and the Federal Reserve time to assess the situation. Donald Trump has already sent out a tweet saying that if U.S. banks collapse, it will be the fault of the Democrats and the Europeans. He's not helping the situation, you think to yourself. Just the fact that he said if the U.S. banks collapse ratcheted the panic in the financial world even higher. These other large U.S. banks were being pressed for answers about their own financial health, but they had no answers, good or bad. And this is bad news, you think to yourself. No news is bad news. But some good news for you. Precious metals are soaring. Silver is up $15 since Tuesday. Gold is up $550. The question you're asking is whether or not to sell now. The metals markets are unbelievably choppy due to the fact that even though record amounts of money is flowing into the market, others are selling metals in order to make margin calls, pay off debt, or just stay afloat. 
The two most important questions you're asking is how much higher will they go and will it be worth selling your metals, a tangible asset for the dollar, which is looking increasingly weak, especially since you don't feel comfortable holding any sizable amount of cash in the banks at this point. You decide to hold for the time being. You can always sell some silver or gold in the future to pay for bills and such. You realize that the future of your job is uncertain at this point and living off your wife's salary would be difficult even if you didn't have a mortgage bill each month. But skipping the mortgage payment isn't an option. So either cutbacks need to be made, you just need to start selling your metals, or both. Oh well. You're sick and tired of the news and just sitting around reading and watching it. You go for a jog, you eat lunch, and mow the lawn. Maybe you'll start on some project on the house soon. Maybe, maybe something not too expensive. At this point, you haven't heard from anyone at your work since Tuesday. You've texted a few coworkers, and they're in the same position you are, in the dark. You're basically assuming at this point that you're either out of your job or laid off for an extended period of time. Your wife is working late until 10 because someone didn't show up for their shift. Even after doing all of that, you still feel restless. You call up your friend, coworker, slash fellow prepper, and head to the rifle range with him. As good of a time as any, you think, it's busy there, and the two of you wait 15 minutes for a lane. This range usually only has something like half of the lanes occupied, even during busy hours. Afterwards, the two of you go out for some Mexican food and maybe a drink or two. Unlike the range, the restaurant is only halfway full, which is odd for such a popular place on a Friday night. The culprit is obvious to you. The two of you talk about the whole crisis with a mixture of, as usual, giddiness, and concern. He isn't as financially stable as you are. He still has a car loan, mortgage, and student loans to pay off. However, he also is heavily invested in precious metals, as you are, along with other preps. The two of you live about two miles away. You cement your relationship with him as being in this together as an economic survival group of sorts. Of course, it's not just fantasy anymore. It's not just talk. This is real life for the two of you. You talk about the failure of so many banks and about what central banks and governments are trying to do to solve the problem. The two of you come to a consensus that, for a while, this crisis will be characterized by bank failures, unemployment, debt defaults, and the like, but eventually, central banks and governments will try to solve the problem by injecting mass amounts of money and spending into the economy, resulting in extremely high inflation, massive asset bubbles, and no stability. That's your best prediction, but there's no telling where it could go with so many possible paths. The two of you agree to meet up more regularly and part ways for the night. On your drive home, you think of how much you'll miss the way things are. Going out to your favorite restaurant, driving a car with a little worry for how much gas you have left, the little things like that. You know it will all change. Most people, they're acting like this is no big deal. They're either ignorant or in denial. But come Monday, when, when banks aren't opening, possibly for good, maybe it will begin to sink in. You pull into your driveway at 9 p.m., an hour before your wife is set to get home. A few lights are on in the house, which is odd to you since you don't remember leaving them on and your wife's car isn't in the driveway. You pull out your keys to unlock your front door, but it's already unlocked. You go inside. Your house is trashed. Furniture is tipped over. Stuff is missing. You begin to take the AR-15 you just finished taking to the range out of its case you just carried inside before realizing 
you had shot every single round that you brought with you to the range. So instead, you reach for a shotgun that you have hidden in a closet by the front door. Clearly, whoever robbed you hadn't looked too hard. You don't know if they're gone or not, so there's nothing wrong with playing it safe. You go through your house, shotgun-shouldered, heart racing, clearing it like a one-man SWAT team. Only, with your adrenaline pumping and mind racing, you don't feel like a SWAT team member. You haven't practiced something like this before. You feel clumsy, uncoordinated, unprepared. Your hands are sweating. You can't think straight. You realize you clear the downstairs and basement twice before even going upstairs. You're rounding corners recklessly and panicking the whole time. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, you finish clearing every room. You lower the muzzle and try to engage the safety again, only to realize that you had never disengaged it in the first place. You feel stupid. You feel vulnerable. Maybe forgetting to disengage the safety is a detail you won't share with your wife in order to salvage what's left of your pride. Uh, Just from a quick scan, you realize your computer and TV are both missing. You go upstairs and check your large safe where you keep your guns, ammo, and precious metals. It's hidden in a closet behind where your clothes are hung up. Untouched, thank God. You look under your bed. Sure enough, a large box filled with fake silver and gold labeled The Pirate's Booty was indeed missing. They took the bait. That was a detail you were certainly going to tell your wife concerning how much she had jokingly berated you for it. You thought it was a pretty clever, though, you thought it was a pretty clever idea, though, especially the name. You also noticed one of the ground level windows was shattered inwards. They must have entered through that window and then waltzed out the front door, stolen items in hand. You go up to your garage. The side door is wide open. Inside, it's a mess. You found that they mostly took power tools. You immediately call the police. They tell you they sent, they will send out a squad car sometime that night, but they warn you that they are inundated with reports of burglary, domestic disputes, and violent crimes. You tell them not to worry about it and to just send one tomorrow. As soon as you get off your phone, your wife pulls in the driveway. You tell her what happened. She's cle- clearly shaken. You try to reassure her, telling her things like, They probably only chose this house because no one was home, or we have guns. If we were home, they would have learned that they chose the wrong house. It isn't helping, she tells you. She's afraid for her safety. You tell her what they took, proudly telling her about how they took the fake gold and silver, and choosing not to mention the embarrassing incident with a shotgun. You aren't rewarded with even the hint of a smile. This is serious, she exclaims. I know, but at least we're both safe. At least we weren't home, you tell her. She breaks down and begins to cry. You've seen her upset before, but this never this upset. Things are different now, she says in between sobs. You confidently begin to talk about how you're prepared for what's going on in the economy and the markets, about how the two of you will be able to weather whatever happens. But she cuts you off. She says, I don't care about the economy. I don't care about any of that. I'm scared. You don't understand. What don't I understand, you ask her. She keeps crying. What don't I understand, you ask again. I'm pregnant, she replies, barely whispering. The room begins to spin. You feel dizzy. You sit down on the floor in the middle of the living room, still surrounded by the mess the burglars had made. You're speechless. Your wife continues to cry. Minutes pass without a word being said. A thousand thoughts are running through your head. This would normally be a stressful but still very exciting situation. The two of you had been trying for months now. But with the backdrop of everything that has happened this week, you find yourself 
fearful. After a few minutes, you break the silence. How long have you known? I took a test a few days ago. I was going to tell you sooner, but it's all been so busy. I know you're stressed about your job, the mortgage, everything else, everything else that's been going on. I didn't want you to be frustrated. I was just going to wait a few days once things calm down some and then tell you. Another 15 seconds pass as you continue to process all of this. Your doubt, your, your fear, fear of the future begins to turn. It's being replaced by excitement, anticipation, joy. I would never be frustrated about something like this, you reply. Look, I know I've been stressed. I know everything has been chaotic, but none of that matters now. None of that means a thing. I'm going to be a father. We're going to be parents. This is huge. We'll make it through this one way or another. She smiles for the first time since getting home. The two of you embrace each other. You're both crying now, but it's not sorrow or stress driving these tears. It's joy. After a while, you remember that you should probably put plywood over the window before you go to bed. Your wife begins to clean up the mess in the house. Once you're done, the two of you stay awake until 2 a.m. You excitedly talk about the names and, and the sex of the baby. Your wife talks about plans for the nursery. Looks like you found yourself a project to do while you're out of work. By the time you start to nod off, any thoughts of the economic crisis is hardly even in the back of your mind. You think to yourself, I can worry about all that tomorrow. But tonight, all that matters is that I'm going to be a dad. Episode 4, Day 7. It's Monday. You wake up in the morning to your phone ringing just as it did every weekday since last Wednesday. Only this time, it isn't the same automated message from corporate that you had come to expect and dread. This time, it was the manager at the satellite office of a medium-sized marketing firm that you had worked at for the last eight years. You and this manager had a decent relationship. There was mutual respect, but not even a hint of friendship. The two of you were from different generations, with him nearing retirement and you nearing 30. In addition, he rarely showed any evidence of a sense of humor, at least at work. It was as though he had been waiting to retire for years now and he was just on autopilot. But this time, talking to you on the phone, he seemed much more cordial than usual. He asked if you could stop by the office later today at 11 to discuss your employment at the company. You consider asking him if this has to do with the economic crisis or whether you're being laid off or fired, but realize that not only will he not answer those questions over the phone, but you already know the answer to those questions. You shoot your coworker a text. He replies that he got a call too and he was asked to come in at 1.30. You consider trying to sleep in a little longer, but you're already up for the day and you have too much on your mind. Last night, after a long weekend of negotiating and, and discussion, the U.S. government announced that Monday would be a bank holiday. Many banks had already stopped transactions via debit and credit cards on Saturday, though you've heard reports that some small local banks or credit unions still have cards that are working. In addition, the New York Stock Exchange announced they will be closed for the day. This was all due to the fact that despite several large U.S. banks being on the verge of collapse, it was still uncertain whether or not they would receive any bailout funds. Most of this debate was taking place in Congress. On one side, you have a collection of moderate Republicans as well as Democrats that believed it was necessary to bail out banks in order to protect the entire U.S. economy from collapsing. 
They also said that they were working in the best interests of the average American in hopes of protecting their job, house, and standard of living. But on the other side was a unholy alliance between limited government and libertarian-leaning conservatives, think Ted Cruz or Rand Paul, and far-left individuals arguing for the government to stop subsidizing the rich, think Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. A bill was introduced in both the House and Senate that proposed a $1.2 trillion bailout of banks and other financial institutions. Donald Trump came out in support of the bill, though he admitted he had reservations about it and was very adamant that the U.S. government would be paid back every cent of it plus interest. The Federal Reserve Chairwoman Janet Yellen, note to the listener that kind of dates when I created this, Janet Yellen rather than uh, Jerome or J. Powell, spoke extensively about the need for the U.S. government to do something and that the central bank couldn't handle this alone. Interest rates were already lowered to 0% by the Fed. They had begun quantitative easing and had publicly said that if Congress didn't act, they would resort to, quote, extreme measures in order to recapitalize the banking sector. Essentially, they meant that not only would they be buying up assets from these banks, but that they would actually give them newly created money, no strings attached. Immediately, this sparked outrage by the very same congressmen and women that were against a government bailout. Though this alliance between small government conservatives and big government socialists was unorthodox, it had, for the time being, halted the bill's progress through the Senate. There were also some that joined their ranks for more pragmatic reasons. They believed that the bailout in 2008 clearly had been ineffective and that other options should be considered. You watch the news. There were protests across the nation. Well, really, across the world. But in the U.S., there were protests popping up in major cities. The size of these protests were compounded by the sheer amount of people that had already been laid off. It is amazing, too, how many people were dependent on the banking system. A majority of workers that had jobs in transportation, shipping, retail, food service, and so many other sectors had been laid off. The businesses had no funds available, so they couldn't pay their employees or, ha- or the other expenses associated with running a business. Schools remained open for the time being. Government employees also were still working for the most part. Your wife was still working at the hospital, but the two of you have no idea if she will get paid by the hospital this Friday. She had yesterday off, but she is working a double shift today. She says that the hospital has been short-staffed since Thursday because of people not showing up. Ever since learning that your wife is pregnant, you've been uneasy about her working for such long hours in an increasingly stressful environment. She's already on her way to work by the time you finish breakfast. You don't know what to do with yourself today, or all week for that matter. You go for a jog and then leave extra early to go to the office. You take a long route to work just to get a feel for the state of your town. You live in a small to moderately sized town of about 40,000. It's about 50 miles from a large city of about 4 million people. You don't expect to see any protesters in town, and you don't. But the streets are almost dead. Businesses are either closed or open with hardly any customers in the store. Even the local Walmart has barely 25 cars in the parking lot. 
You again find yourself wishing you had kept more cash on hand for all the hype about the treasury bills shipping around the country in order to satisfy demand for cash, you'd yet to see any. You show up to the office. There's a few cars in the company's parking lot. You find your manager in his office. He asks you to have a seat. He tells you that as of right now, all staff at your office, himself included, are laid off. The two of you talk for a few more minutes, some about the economy, some about the uh, future of the economy. He says he had planned on retiring within a year, but that as soon as, but, but as far as he knows, he's not sure if his retirement account is even there anymore. You don't feel any ill will towards him. If anything, you, you pity him. He's a man that has worked his entire life for the system, and the system has left him with nothing. You head home. You consider starting on the nursery, but you don't really have any supplies, just some random paint cans in the basement. As you pull into the driveway, you notice your neighbor across the street working on his late model Mustang that you see him washing and detailing every single weekend in his driveway. He usually works a nine-to-five job. You can't remember where, something to do with shipping or trucking. The two of you have been neighbors since he moved in three years ago. In that time span, you talked to him maybe a dozen times. You invited him, his wife, and three kids over for barbecue when they moved in, but you quickly learned that the two of you have very little in common. He's loud, he has a poor temper, and you and your wife have speculated that he and his wife have been involved in domestic disputes in the past because of several visits by the police. The one time he did come over, he drank three beers before the burgers were even done on the grill. He then proceeded to yell at his kids and sent them home because one of them had accidentally broken your lawn chair. You could care less about the chair. You even told him so. But after sending them home, he went into a long rant about why discipline is important for kids. Since then, any discussions were brief and superficial. You don't like him, and you know he probably isn't a fan of you. You decide that now is as good of time as any to work on relationships with your neighbors, even if you find them to be unpleasant. You ask him about his car and what he's working on. He tells you it's something to do with a belt while adding in his own profanity. You stand there in awkward silence as he continues to work on it. So what do you think of all this going on with the banks, you ask, trying to salvage a conversation? He starts talking about how stupid those politicians are, how it's their fault that we're in this mess. You can gather that he is wholeheartedly for a bailout. He makes it obvious that he just wants his job back. He's angry. And not surprisingly, it's only 12.30 and you can smell alcohol on his breath. You make some excuse saying that you need to get back to something at your house. He ignores you and you walk back to your house. You read up on what's going on in Congress. The bailout bill was just recently voted on in the Senate. It failed on a 42 to 57 vote. Trump is expected to give a speech from the Oval Office in a few minutes. You turn on your TV, eager to see how he handles what will surely be a pivotal point in his presidency as well as the history of the United States. He begins by talking about how he is disappointed in Congress's decision to not bail out financial institutions. But he goes on to say that as it stands now, he will accept their decision in that he will do what he can using executive voters to ease the pain in the economy. 
He offers no specifics on what those actions will be. However, he goes on to say that this crisis is proof that Obama and Democrats did not help the economy recover, but only put a band-aid on the situation during the Great Recession. To your surprise and glee, he talks about how the Federal Reserve helped Obama in doing this by keeping interest rates low and through quantitative easing. He says that if the Federal Reserve attempts to move forward with their own version of a bailout by giving banks free money, his administration will sue them. He says he already has judges that will rule in his favor. He finishes with some rhetoric that reminds you of when he was on the campaign trail. He again takes a few shots at Obama and the Fed and then talks about making America great again. As soon as he is finished, you watch the mainstream media pick apart his speech with, you know, as usual, their bias clearly showing. After about five minutes, you're sick of hearing about it. You're bored. You don't know what to do with yourself and you feel guilty about your wife working while you sit at home. You clean your guns thoroughly You clear your house a few times for practice. You still feel stupid about the other night. You do some chores around the house. You decide you want to start reading a book, which is something you haven't done in years. You pick up The Count of Monte Cristo, an old favorite of yours. You immerse yourself in it, reading for hours. You miss this. You used to read it all the time. Now, the only reading you did was either news articles or things related to work. At 8 p.m., your reading is interrupted by your phone vibrating. It's a text from your coworker. Are you watching this on the TV, he wrote. You're confused. You flip on the news. The world is burning. There's footage of massive riots across Europe continuing into the early morning. There's reports of martial law in parts of Spain and France. In the U.S., there's much of the same. Chicago is burning. St. Louis is burning. Miami is burning. The footage scrolls through a dozen different major U.S. cities where riots are running free in the streets, burning cars in some smaller buildings. Stores are being looted. You see images of crowds pouring into Walmarts and Best Buys and Targets. You hear a pair of cop cars fly by your house, sirens blaring. But that's not even the biggest news. There's reports coming in that a sitting U.S. senator from the East Coast was shot and is in critical condition with the assailant unidentified and on the run. In Houston, gunfire erupted between police and rioters. There's reports of over a dozen casualties. Flights have been grounded from two dozen national, two, two dozen airports across the country. One by one, state governors call up their National Guard. Only, they aren't giving orders to subdue the crowds, but only to protect certain government buildings and pieces of infrastructure, such as power plants, water filtration plants, etc. You briefly turn on your local news. They're reporting on the same national events, but also mention that many downtown businesses have reported being ransacked by groups of thugs. You turn it to CNN, they have live footage of a protest in D.C. meeting lines of police and military members. The reporter was on the ground about 100 yards behind the police line. You see not only riot gear, but also MRAPs, likely surplus ones from conflicts in Iraq or or, uh, Syria or Afghanistan, topped with 7.62 machine guns. Police carrying M4s, soldiers carrying the same. The reporter was talking about how the authorities had warned the crowds to disperse or else be subjected to tear gas attacks. Suddenly, a shot rings out. 
And then a few more. The reporter ducks and, and moves out of the view of the camera, leaving the view of the police line unobstructed. You see the flash of two more gunshots from the crowd. The gunner atop an MRAP open fires on the crowd. The broadcast goes black after you hear at least 10 more rounds fired. The feed picks up back at the CNN headquarters. Anderson Cooper is as shocked as you are. He stutters something about Holly will have a follow-up on the situation in D.C. and apologizes for the disturbing footage. You continue to watch news until your wife makes it home. She listened to the news the whole way home, she says. The two of you sit on the couch watching the news in disbelief. You're sure to keep your wife rifle leaning up against the wall within your reach just in case. The two of you hardly say a word to each other as the news continues to pour in from around the country. ABC reports that at least seven were killed in the D.C. protest. They say the source of the gunfire was undetermined, but you saw it with your own eyes. Just as you're becoming accustomed to the violence, the carnage you're witnessing, a new news report comes out of Europe. There's early reports of abnormal military action inside of Germany. However, most broadcasters within the country have had their transmissions cut off. The major broadcasters, devoid of any transmissions within the country, resort to tweets coming out of the countries or live streams from the streets of Germany. There's reports of clashes between police and military and the mobilization of the German Air Force and Army. Allegedly, the armed forces had already been on alert due to unrest. After over an hour of media blackout, suddenly Germany's broadcasters come back online. You watch as the anchors of a major German news network make an announcement in German, which is then translated to English with a brief delay. You watch as they announce that the government of Angela Merkel, who had recently been re-elected by the slimmest of margins, had been deposed and detained. The feed cut to a German general, speaking with what appeared to be a German politician. The politician announced again that power had been seized from what he called the treasonous administration and that order had been restored within the country. He went on to talk about how, effective immediately, the new German Republic would no longer be a member of NATO, the European Union, or the euro currency. Essentially, he laid out the plan for a German-first policy. You watch, along with millions others, stunned by these developments, stunned by how much the world has changed in one week. A week ago, to the minute, you were going to sleep, worrying about some work project you had to finish. Now, you can't even recall what that project was or who it was for. A week ago, this collapse was something that you thought would happen eventually, somewhere in the distant future, but now it's a reality, and you can only hope that you prepared sufficiently. It's midnight, and you don't see yourself sleeping much tonight. Episode 5, Day 9. It's Wednesday. You wake up to your alarm on your phone. Your wife is still in bed as well. She worked half of her 16-hour shift yesterday, but you insisted she not be there at night. Yesterday morning, after a long night of violence, arson, vandalism, and theft, the riots that had engulfed so many cities around the globe seemed to calm down. Last night, there was an uneasy peace in most U.S. cities, with smaller riots occurring in a few cities and a few neighborhoods, but they were quickly subdued. This was largely due to the fact that the National Guard had been mobilized in these cities and in these states, and law enforcement was beefed up, with many officers working as much as 24 hours straight in some areas. 
The words martial law had not yet been uttered by Trump or any governors for that matter, but is certainly moving in that direction. You've already heard reports that as much as 20% of law enforcement individuals hadn't shown up for their shift. In addition, close to 10% of military personnel that had been activated in these cities have gone AWOL. Your wife said that the hospital was unbelievably short-staffed yesterday. Most lower-level staff, such as CNAs, janitorial staff, etc., hadn't shown up. The same goes for the administrative staff. This wasn't surprising since the hospital had notified their staff on Monday that paychecks would not be delivered this Friday due to their payroll account being frozen. Of course, you know that it very well could be empty. Elective surgeries had been canceled, and some patients with routine conditions such as ankle sprains or mild sickness had been turned away. U.S. said that they were also rationing certain supplies such as antibiotics and saline. Had you been in her shoes, you likely would have gone to work anyways despite the increasing workload and no pay. You felt it would be the right choice, but with her being pregnant, you suddenly find yourself being more concerned for her well-being. You told her that it would probably be a good idea to stay home today. She fought you initially, but went along with it. She'd already worked well over 60 hours in the last week. She was tired. She was run down. So you have a feeling she's glad she's taken some time off. Stock markets still had yet to open this week in the United States. The bailout of the major banks was still being hotly debated in Congress, but the situation was further complicated by an ongoing crash in the bond market. This had caused interest rates to soar, meaning that any further spending by the government will carry a higher price tag. Trump used the riots on Monday to further the case for the bailout. However, it seems like the more he supports the bill, the more Democrats are coming out in opposition to the bill in typical partisan fashion. Also, some news outlets have begun to speculate that the recent riots were not all the result of government not acting by bailing out the banks, but rather in response to the banks acting in such risky fashion that had caused them to essentially collapse for the second time in 10 years. For almost a week, people were either panicking, confused, or in denial, but it seems that now, this week, on, on Monday, something awoke. It was anger, it was anger towards banks, governments, authority, etc. You certainly don't condone the violence, the looting that occurs. And you know that such uprisings can lead down undesirable paths such as communism, nationalism, fascism. Yet you find yourself hopeful that this anger is sustained long enough for people to realize the true cause of all this pain and misery. One country that was surprisingly stable throughout this whole crisis was China. Because their banking sector is so closely tied with government, the banks were able to maintain some level of solvency, or at least the appearance of solvency. The country of nearly 1.5 billion people had managed to hold on to some semblance of peace and order. However, you knew this would change. China's economy is heavily dependent on exports to the rest of the world. You know that demand in the rest of the world has collapsed. As this shockwave hits China, their economy will also collapse. Their neighbors to the south, India, have not fared so well. Anarchy prevails in most of the slums and rural areas, and where there's not anarchy, the Indian government has rapidly become even more oppressive than they were prior to these events, with soldiers and police dealing out justice in whatever way they feel fit. 
You and your wife eat breakfast together. You're close to running out of perishables like milk, eggs, fruit, etc. Luckily, you have a few months of survival food in the basement. You're not worried at this point about food. If anything, you're the most worried about fuel for your cars. You have a few five-gallon cans in the garage, but that's it. Gas stations are rationing gas sales, and many have already posted signs that read out of gas. You already feel boredom creeping in, despite the fact that you aren't home alone today. For years, you had always filled your days with things to do, work, college, projects, other outings, but now they're just things to do like watch the news on the TV, scroll through your phone and look through endless amounts of web pages. You decide today would be a, as good of a day as any to take on the task of reconnecting with your family. You hadn't talked to any of them at length since all of this started. Only a brother of yours knows that you were into what some might call prepping, and he lives 500 miles away. The rest of them, and at least your immediate family, uh, which include two brothers, a sister, and your parents, live within a 50-mile radius of where you live, mostly closer to the large city nearby. And for the time being, they are in the dark about your prepping about your preparations for an event like the ones that are occurring right now. You decide that for the time being, you'd like to continue to keep them in the dark. You call your dad. He only retired six months ago. You ask him about how he's been doing, trying hard not to broach the subject of finances and allowing him to do that on his own if he so chooses. You spend the next 20 minutes listening to him rant about how those bums in Congress don't care about the average citizen. You can't blame him for his hostility towards the government. He worked for over 40 years to earn his retirement, and even though he wasn't willing to admit it, or maybe he was in denial about it, but his retirement account likely was non-existent at this point. You don't want to even mention the possibility that could be the fault of the banks and not just the government. He asks how you're doing financially, if you need help at all. You tell him you're doing fine without giving any other details. And then you realize that you and your wife haven't told any of your family or friends that you're expecting. Everything has been so busy lately, so chaotic, and it hasn't even come up in conversation. You consider asking if he and your mother would want to have dinner soon, but you decide against it. If you've learned anything in your four years of marriage it, with your wife, that it's that you'd rather discuss it with your wife first before making decisions. Maybe she wanted to wait a while to let people know. Maybe she wanted to wait for the recent crisis to, uh, to, to blow over, to develop further. You finish up your conversation by asking how your three siblings in the area are doing. All of them are out of, the work, out of work for the time being by the sounds of it. You say goodbye and that you'll stay in touch. You know that some tough decisions will have to be made in the future in regards to both your friends and family. Do you help them when they're out of food, when they're out of water, gas, or even when they no longer have a place to stay? And if you do, how much do you help? Do you give a little? Do you give a lot? Do you let them move in? Do you help all of them or do you just help some of them? All of these are questions that you knew you'd eventually have to address. You skip calling your siblings for the time being and instead, once again, turn on the news. This top story is... Well, honestly, there's a variety of stories on at this point. Congress and the ongoing debate over the bailout. Trump, the recent assassination of a senator, the ongoing riots, banks, Europe, Germany. But for the time being, they're talking about Germany, or at least what used to be known simply as Germany. 
After the coup on Monday night, it's now known as the New German Republic. It's clear to you that Trump has made an effort to align himself with a new nation. Other European countries have resentfully acknowledged the new government. You know that in normal times, most, if not all, EU member nations would have immediately denounced the coup. They probably wouldn't have allowed it to run its course. But these European leaders know that their own countries are on the verge of revolution or also falling victim to a military coup. Nonetheless, there are reports that armies around the world are on alert. You know that in the past, times of economic hardship often coincide with conflicts at both the domestic and the international level. CNN was documenting the escalation in tensions between Russia and NATO, Israel and the Middle East, China and Taiwan, North and South Korea, India and Pakistan, Turkey and the Kurds. Uh, North and South Korea in particular have already exchanged a few artillery shells. They quickly switch topics and begin to talk about the bailout plans. There's intense pressure from the public for more action from the government. Thus far, all that has come out is a renewed promise that the FDIC would still pay out funds on insured accounts if those banks did end up going under. The problem, you think to yourself, is that such action would take months. There'd be hundreds of millions of accounts to settle, which is no small task. Conservatives continue to be against nationalization of banks, whereas liberals are continuing to insist that they do not want to bail out the rich once again. The prospects for a solution look bleak. Your phone rings. It's your coworker that is also a prepper. Well, now that you think about it, your ex-coworker. You guys are both out of a job. He's inviting you and your wife over for dinner. He says that he has a bunch of food that's going to go bad soon and that he might as well use it. You gladly accept the invitation. You do anything to get out of the house and do something, and you know your wife probably feels the same. A few hours later, you head over there. You bring your handgun. You've been meaning to get around to getting a concealed carry permit for years, but never found the time. It's something you always put off. But now you figure out the odds of being caught by a police officer are slim, much slimmer than the odds of you needing the handgun at some point. You conceal it inside your waistband. The four of you, plus your friend's kids, eat a pot roast dinner. You realize halfway through the meal that they likely could have just put it in the freezer, but you don't say anything. I mean, you can't blame them for being bored, much like you and your wife were. The meal was delicious, and afterwards you play some card games to pass the time. This is how you had always imagined it, playing cards or or board games to pass the time with, with friends, with family. The four of you talked about the economy. He has reminisced about the past. Your wife even let them know that she was expecting, considering they likely wouldn't tell, tell anyone you knew, including your family members. You enjoyed this distraction from current events from the future. The four of you socialized for hours, eventually calling the card game quits. It was 9.12 p.m. You sat on a digital clock and an end table in their house. It was a time that will forever be etched in your memory, along with the red font of the digital numbers. The kids were already in their bed, and you were telling an anecdote about your friend from your days at the marketing firm about a time he tried to do a presentation while he had a stomach flu. It wasn't humorous at the time, but in the future, a couple years later, well, everyone was laughing at it. The four of you had forgotten for the time being about the outside world. That story was another detail that you would never forget. Suddenly, you hear the tornado siren outside, a few blocks away. 
odd, you thought to yourself, considering it's October, and the forecasters had said there's a chance of frost tonight, the first of the year. The second thought you had was, it's the Russians. You said it out loud, and everyone laughed, and then they laughed again, but a little nervously this time. Stupid, you know, but it was something you'd always had told yourself, that one day the tornado sirens would go off, but they'd be acting as air raid sirens, like London during World War II. You and your friends step outside. It's a still night, with the exception of the siren that is still screaming off in the distance. A prank, you think to yourself, maybe. Suddenly, you hear a scream from inside the house. It's your wife. The two of you run inside to find them standing in front of the TV. You're confused for a second, but then you see what's on the screen, and you can't believe your eyes. Episode 6, Day 10. You didn't sleep last night. You and your wife didn't end up going home until around 11 p.m., and the two of you had your eyes glued to the TV since then. When your wife and her friend had turned on the TV last night at about 9.15 p.m., it was a full 45 minutes after the first nuclear warhead was detonated. Not by Russia, not by North Korea, not by China, but by Pakistan. Or at least that's what the Indian government initially reported. That was later confirmed by American, Russian, and Chinese officials that detected an inbound missile traveling over the Pakistani land and eventually striking uh, inside the borders of India shortly before the blast. The warhead was detonated a few hundred feet above the Indian capital of New Delhi. The warhead was estimated to be at least 300 kilotons according to estimates based on past Pakistani nuclear tests. The Indian government has estimated already that at least 1.5 million people died within seconds of the blast. This was being reported in the CNN newsroom when you walked in from outside. There is no footage of New Delhi at the moment, only a statement from the Indian government, which was roughly translated as, at 8 a.m. local time, a nuclear warhead was detonated in New Delhi. Intelligence suggests that the origin of the warhead was Pakistan and was carried via missile. At this time, the Indian armed forces feel the need to protect her people using any means necessary. Jets had already been scrambled by every major world power, including the United States. The U.S. was already at DEFCON 2. Shortly after this announcement from India, Pakistan released a statement saying that the missile had been launched by a rogue element of the military. Pakistan also said that they did not seek a further escalation of the conflict, but were prepared to defend themselves. You remember being in disbelief as the first footage rolled in, a security camera that captured the nuclear blast and resulting mushroom cloud from a few dozen miles away. As the CNN reporter was analyzing the footage, another report came in, this time that two separate nuclear blasts had been reported in the Pakistani cities of Islamabad and Karachi. You knew at the time that the world was dangerously close to a much larger nuclear war. India then announced that they would cease their use of nuclear weapons as long as Pakistan stood down. Shortly afterwards, joint operations were announced by the U.S., Russian, Chinese, and Indian Air Forces targeting Pakistani Air Force bases and missile sites. It's 11 a.m. now. Things are cooling down for the time being. U.S. Secretary of Defense James Mattis is in a joint announcement with Donald Trump defending the Air Force's joint operation with Russia, China, and India, all of which were unlikely allies. He said that the operation eliminated Pakistani nuclear capabilities to the best of their knowledge. 
Donald Trump condemned the use of nuclear weapons by Pakistan and said that the full might of the U.S. military and people stood behind the Indian government. He made no mention of Indian use of nuclear weapons. Indian armed forces had already invaded a dozen miles into Pakistani territory, though their intentions on Pakistani land were still unclear. You were thankful that this nuclear war had ended so abruptly, or at least that it appeared to be ending for the time being. As of right now, you can't fully wrap your mind around the sheer loss of life that occurred in the last 12 hours. Between the three blasts, you've heard estimates that as many as 4 million perished almost instantly, with perhaps another million dying in the coming days and weeks due to radiation poisoning, burns, infections, ongoing fires, starvation, etc. The humanitarian response has been weak thus far. Red Cross, the UN, etc. still are reeling from the effects of the ongoing financial crisis. Under more stable conditions, you feel it's more likely that, that many world powers would offer a huge amount of humanitarian aid to both of the countries, not even just India. However, many of these wealthy countries find their resources and cash stretched dangerously thin due to being tasked with maintaining order and vital pieces of infrastructure. In the U.S., along with other developed nations, the government has seized control of things such as power plants, water treatment plants, cell towers, and other telecommunications centers. Despite the urgency of the ongoing economic crisis, Congress was preoccupied with the events in India and Pakistan for the time being. You and your wife had just finished eating lunch with your eyes glued to the TV as they had been for quite some time when the TV suddenly shut off. Confused, you got up and tried to flip on a light. No luck. You panicked for a second. You thought to yourself, this is how it ends. The lights go out and they just don't come back on for months, for years. You just thought it was awfully early in all of this for this to happen. Why were they going out already? Just as you're about to go across the street to ask your neighbor if he had power, the TV suddenly turned back on. Confused, you call your power company. Rather than speaking to an actual individual, you got a recently recorded message with a woman's voice stating, Dear valued customer, due to the recent shortage of resources used for power creation, we anticipate rolling brownouts for residential areas for the foreseeable future. These brownouts will vary in length, but will be most common at nighttime. Please understand that, although this is unfortunate, our facilities are being stretched to the extreme, and the alternative is that we would need to shut down power production altogether. In the coming days, we'll be in contact with you, hopefully with a schedule of when you can expect power interruptions. In the coming weeks, you can also expect a letter in the mail with a price adjustment to account for the increased cost of resources. The line went dead. You would have appreciated a call ahead of time, but regardless, you were thankful that this was not a complete blackout, at least for the time being. The power outage had freed you from your news-consuming stupor. As important as the events around the world were, especially in India and Pakistan, you could feel it taking a toll on you emotionally. You were looking for something to do. Most businesses were closed around town, not that you could spare the cash anyways. You decide to just take a drive around town with your wife, devoid of any better ideas. You drive around the business district, go down Main Street. You drive a few miles up the interstate that runs through the center of your town. You notice something interesting along the way. The southbound lane, going away from the large city about 50 miles to the north, is noticeably more crowded than the northbound lanes. Not by a lot, but you also notice that there are many vehicles that look as though they're going on a camping trip in October. 
Cars, vans, SUVs with things strapped down on the roof. You stop at a rest stop where you see a few of these vehicles vehicles parked. It's a varied group of people, a few senior citizens, some kids, parents. You spot a man that looks to be close to 50 and approach him in a friendly manner, ask him where he's heading. He's taken aback initially, but you explain that you notice all the other people leaving the city. You call them refugees, jokingly. He says he lived in a neighborhood in the city that had just lost power for several hours last night. And that he and his wife decided that it would be best to leave the city and seek refuge at their cabin another 40 miles away. You wish him well in part ways. You're hoping that this migration away from large cities doesn't accelerate anymore, but you have a feeling it will. You and your wife visit your friend's house, the same friend's house that you were at last night when the limited nuclear war took place. You stay and talk for a few hours. The mood is noticeably gloomier than last night. Nobody was playing cards. The kids, even, were not in much of a mood to play with each other. The two of you head home for the evening. The two of you eat some of the add water and heat survival food that you had stored away. You aren't out of normal food yet, but you figured it wouldn't be a bad idea to try it out. It was mediocre. The package said it was lasagna, but it was mostly just mushy, pasta-ish mess that tasted like tomato paste and basil. Better than nothing, you think to yourself. 8 p.m. rolls around and the lights go out until 9.30 p.m. Having not watched the news since around noon, you turn on the TV once the power comes back on. They're still talking about the India-Pakistan conflict, but you're more interested in their reporting of riots across the country inside the United States. It's similar to the night of rage a few days ago, only this time both the authorities and rioters are more ruthless. The reporters, as far as you can see, are generally being protected by law enforcement or military. They're no longer mixed in with a crowd. Could you imagine what those crowds would do to a major news network reporter? They were the elite that many of these people despised. There's also some cell phone footage from the other side, inside of these riots. Only, you aren't watching these videos on CNN or Fox. You find them online. They're gruesome. The mainstream media says that there are reports of violence, arson, theft, etc., but these videos on a less sanitized part of the internet are difficult for you to watch, difficult for you to stomach. You open one titled, Philadelphia Man Beat to Death by Crowd. You watch the grainy footage of a man being kicked and punched by several rioters. You see one of them with something in his hand, bend over and thrust his hand towards a man five or six times. The crowd quickly disperses as you see the man lying there, motionless, on top of a quickly forming pool of blood. It was unpleasant, to say the least, but it may have been one of the milder videos listed. There were plenty others covering cases of beheadings, torture, gang rape, and more. You knew that you couldn't stomach any of those videos, so you didn't even bother opening them. Most of these riots are in large cities like Chicago, Seattle, Los Angeles, etc., There were stories about some smaller towns going the opposite route. With little or no help from the state or federal government, local police departments have enlisted the help of local gun owners, local vigilantes to protect businesses, or even to set up a perimeter around town. In your town, the sirens of emergency vehicles are a constant whine in the background. You don't dare go outside, even though you doubt any riots were anywhere near as big as those in larger cities. Plus, you live a few few miles from the commercial and industrial parts of town, so you're feeling fairly confident that, for the time being, you're safe from marauding gangs or uh, rogue riots. 
Unlike a few nights prior, you're no longer surprised to see law enforcement or military open fire on these rioters. You and your wife stay in front of the TV until around midnight. The power goes out then, and the two of you agree it's time for bed. She falls asleep quickly, but you stay awake until 3 a.m., listening as the siren, police sirens move closer and then further and then closer to your neighborhood. Finally, you give in to your fatigue and fall asleep while the world outside burns. Day 17, Episode 7. You wake up in the morning to the sunlight pouring through the window. You check the time on your watch, which is sitting on the nightstand next to your bed. For the past week, the power outages have become, have become more frequent and have gotten longer and longer. The power went out yesterday around 3 p.m., and as you wake up, you realize the power is still out. That would explain why the house is feeling so cold. It's October, but there's already frost most mornings. What's frustrating to you is that your large propane tank in your backyard is half full, but what good is fuel for a furnace if you have no electricity to power it? Unfortunately, you didn't have the foresight to buy a generator. Your house does have a fireplace, but you've only used it a few times in the past since moving in, and as winter nears, you know it will be woefully inadequate, but better than nothing. The last week has been largely uneventful in your own life. Most of your time has been occupied by simple projects around the house, rearranging the furniture, replacing beat-up floorboards, basically anything you'd find to distract yourself. You had your prepper friend and his family over for dinner a few nights ago, but gas was becoming an increasingly precious resource. Some gas stations would occasionally get a shipment of gas, but people were limited to a few gallons if they even had the cash to spare. Otherwise, you tried to keep up on the news and keep a pulse on the town you lived in. A steady stream of migrants continued to pour out from the large city 50 miles up the interstate. But most were just passing through on their way to a cabin, a relative's house, and the like. Events around the United States and the world continued to be volatile, unpredictable, and destructive. India and Pakistan signed a ceasefire yesterday, shortly after India's offensive stalled out. China, in a surprise move a few days ago, carried out a coup in North Korea and then proceeded to annex it. Allegedly, North Korea had planned on taking advantage of the U.S. and South Korea's weakness by invading South Korea. China took action to defuse the situation in order to avoid a major, possibly nuclear, conflict involving its number one trading partner, the United States. The Greek government dissolved recently, sending the nation into anarchy and chaos. A full-scale revolution was being carried out in Brazil by the poor and by the rural citizens. However, you found yourself increasingly distrustful of the media's reporting of events within the United States. More and more, the media took the side of the increasingly desperate and tyrannical government. Not that many of the riots were necessarily justified. However, you knew for a fact that not every form of protest was violent. Not every protester was a thug. There was a sizable contingency of, the, of U.S. citizens that held the government, along with banks, responsible for this entire mess in the first place. But this segment was not being represented on mainstream media. There's far more visible online, on alternative news sites. Facebook and YouTube had begun censoring such outlets, claiming that they were inciting violence. And that's what really angered you. People that held disapproving views of the government of financial system were blamed for these riots and crimes. Of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. 
But despite the history behind Trump and the liberal media, they gladly came to the aid of the ailing republic. The U.S. Congress was set to finally vote on a bailout bill that had enough support to to pass through both chambers of Congress. Unfortunately, it wasn't so much that the contents of the bill had changed, but rather the circumstances in the U.S. and around the world. Without the powerful finance sector running on all cylinders, it was clear that the U.S. government could not and would not be able to to maintain order and control. As you ate lunch, you had a crank-powered radio playing so that you could listen to the news regarding the bailout bill. It already cleared the House by a narrow margin, and the Senate had just passed it on to a narrow 51-48 to vote. You were relieved, or at least somewhat relieved. On principle, you were against the whole idea, but you had to admit, in the last two-plus weeks, things had gotten pretty bad. Riots, borderline martial law, revolutions, heck, even a few nukes went off overseas. You wanted things to return to normal. You wanted your 9-to-5 job. You wanted power. You wanted to be able to drive your car with no regard for a gas shortage. You wanted the option to go to the store and buy cold milk or ice cream or even bananas. I mean, if the world kept falling apart, why would anyone import bananas this far north? You were feeling good about your chances of at least surviving, but you knew that you wouldn't have fun along the way. But on the other hand, you knew that if the current system was saved, that those in power would remain in power. Big banks, big government, central banks, all those things would survive. In fact, it was more likely that many of those players would use this crisis crisis to further consolidate power at the top. And that was assuming this bailout, as massive as it was, would actually work. The rest of the world was still in shambles. How much of this damage could be repaired? The businesses that had been burnt down the relationships that had been damaged. How could relations between the police and military and such a large segment of the urban population ever be restored? So many questions still remain, even as Trump signs this behemoth of a bailout bill into law. After lunch, you decide to go for a run, something you find yourself having more and more time to do as of late. The trade-off between the burning of what will possibly soon be precious calories and maintaining a fit cardiovascular system is one that you're more than happy to take. You're about a quarter of a mile into your run when you hear a series of gunshots emanating from the center of your town. They're far away, no doubt, at least half a mile away, but still too close for comfort. You forego, forego the remainder of your jog and quickly run home. You call your friend whose house is in the direction of the gunshots. He heard them too. He lives much closer to the commercial and industrial part of town, and also closer to the interstate that bisects the town. He doesn't know where they came from, but he said that they were less than a quarter mile away. He said they probably had to do with the refugees. Uh, That's what you referred to the people who were fleeing the metropolis up the interstate about 50 miles. Come to think of it, you'd have seen a few more cars than usual, even on your road. He noted that he didn't hear any police sirens. Neither of you had heard any police sirens for a day or two now. Suddenly, your friend says that he just heard a few more shots closer this time. He says he's got to go and hangs up. You shoot him a text asking for an update when he has a chance. You decide that the best thing to do at this point would be to consider hunkering down and waiting things out. 30 minutes later, you and your wife are listening to the radio when he texts you back. He says he heard from a neighbor that there was an SUV a few blocks away loaded with five or four, four or five people that was going door to door with guns robbing people. Apparently, one of the guys in the SUV had been shot by some homeowner and then left for the time being. 
He says he saw the SUV speeding away down the street, away from the other house. Without asking your wife first, you ask him if he thinks it would be a good idea to move in with you just for the time being. You explain how you could share resources and you have more security. He immediately agrees to the idea, telling you that he'll load up what he needs this afternoon and drive over tomorrow. You tell him the plan sounds good and tell him to keep in touch. After hanging up, you break the news to your wife. She understands the logic of the idea and she knows that you aren't thrilled about it either. Still, desperate times. You spend the evening clearing out the guest bedroom and a cluttered, rarely used living room in the basement. It might be a little more crowded, but at least it won't at least it would break the monotony that had dominated the last two weeks of your life. You call your friend once more around 9 p.m. He says everything is loaded up in their two cars, or at least everything they plan on bringing. He also says that he saw the same SUV he saw earlier drive up and down his street twice. He is worried, but of all the houses, what would be the odds that his would be targeted? You ask him if he wants to come over tonight, he says no, and that he feels they would be all, that they would be all right for at least this night. The remainder of the evening, you and your wife play cards, listen to the radio, and get the fireplace going just to try it out. It isn't nearly warm enough to heat the entire house, uh, but assuming you can provide it with enough wood, it'll help at least keep, keep a room or two warm this winter. After relaxing in front of the fireplace for a while, the two of you go to bed for the night. You're tired and not particularly anxious. Your wife falls asleep immediately, but you stay awake for a while, thinking about all that has transpired in the last week and a half. The world has changed so much, but has it been for the better? This thought is the last you have before you begin to nod off. But before you completely fall asleep, you hear something outside. It sounds like somebody shouting. As you get up to check out the second story window, you hear a gunshot from across the street and then another. And then silence. You quickly grab your rifle. Your wife is already awake. You're looking out the window, trying to see what is going on at your neighbor's house. It's overcast and pitch black without the usual street lights. You can't see a thing. Then, suddenly, a gunshot coincides with a flash in an upstairs bedroom, upstairs bedroom of your neighbor's house. And then, again, nothing but darkness. You hear someone knocking on your front door.